The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, 30th September 2021. Professor Nigel Crawford addresses several highly relevant and important topics ranging from the safety of mRNA vaccines, vaccination of children under the age of 12, the reopening of schools, and vaccine uptake issues, including culturally and linguistically diverse groups, the vaccine mandates, and the concept of additional doses. My name's Nigel Crawford, and it's my pleasure to give you a COVID-19 vaccine update. And as always, things are moving quickly, so it's now late September. I'm just going to take you through some of the things that have been happening over the last month and and also um, things coming up uh, as we move into the the, um, last quarter of 2021. As always, just give a declaration of interest. So I'm the Director of SAFIC, the Victorian Vaccine Safety Service based at MCRI and also currently a Senior Medical Advisor to the Victorian Department of Health Vaccine Safety Team also a member and incoming chair of ATAGI, but this presentation as always just reflects my own views and not necessarily those of my affiliations. So the things I'm going to cover today include a little bit of an update on, on Moderna, a vaccine safety update, some horizon scans, really what's happening in the vaccination for the under 12s, that's a really common question at the moment, how can we start to open up our schools, and also some, um, some of the issues that are coming around vaccine uptake, uh, including the culturally and linguistically diverse groups, some mandates are clearly coming in for different groups and also um, additional or booster doses. So just touching on the Moderna spike vaccine, I did touch on this last time, but this vaccine is now available in Australia, was um, accessed a little bit earlier than expected, which was great news, and it is rolling out into pharmacies. So really important to be aware, this is a vaccine that will be used in some other areas of the the program, but is currently with the pharmacies. It's an mRNA platform vaccine, so similar side effect profile to the Pfizer or Comirnaty vaccine, very similar uh, vaccine efficacy uh, results that I showed at my last um, presentation. And it's TGA approved uh, for 12 and over. So again, similar to the um, Pfizer vaccine. It's two doses are required, 28 days apart is the minimum requirement. And um, the, on the right hand side there, just a, uh, again, a plug for a little video that shows you how the mRNA vaccines work. In terms of more frequently asked questions, that's a link to our Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre website. So that can take you through some more specifics of this vaccine and the Melbourne University weekly vaccine update will keep you up to date with those latest vaccine um, effectiveness data, which is coming out of lots of different studies, particularly the United States and uh, the UK. But moving now into the vaccine safety update, again, this is focusing on the mRNA vaccine, so both Pfizer and Moderna. And again, touched on this in previous presentations, but important to realise that sort of the myopericulitis is the main signal that we're um, supporting the investigation and and management for and have some more up-to-date information for you regarding this adverse event of special interest. It's a signal that was first identified in the US and Israel and um, was strongest following the second dose of the vaccine. It occurs around one to seven days um, after the vaccine. Some have been a little bit delayed in terms of their presentations out to a couple of weeks, but generally been in that pretty tight window just after the vaccine. 
The main risk factors appear to be males, so particularly those um, between 60 and 30 years, but has been seen in, in the 12 to 15 year old age group as well. So something to be aware of as we start that childhood rollout. No increase in other groups, which have been really important. So we're hearing from our, particularly United States and Canadian colleagues that they haven't seen a lot of cases uh, in the First Nations people, hasn't been seen in those with the background of congenital heart disease nor those with medications which may be associated with some cardiac issues. So again, no major flags in terms of risk factors um, in those who might be contraindicated to get the vaccine. That's not the case for any of these groups. In terms of exactly what's occurring or how it's being triggered is still um, something that's unknown, but there's obviously lots of investigations uh, occurring, particularly, as I mentioned, in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. So this was a presentation given to the ACIP or the um, Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices, which is the ATAGI equivalent of United States. They have a public forum and you can find uh, on the link there the um, link to the presentation. I'll just take you through some of the key slides. This one here just confirms that time window. So you can see on the left-hand side, it's the cases. On the right-hand side, it's the rates. And that's on the bottom, or the x-axis, is the number of days post the vaccine. It's really that seven days you can see the main peak, with some occurring a little bit later. But predominantly, they've been within that seven-day window. In terms of the outcome, again, really important to understand um, myocarditis being inflammation of the heart and pericarditis, the lining of the heart, um, focusing those that had combination of the two or just the myocarditis which is the more severe end of the spectrum. They had 742 cases which they've been able to follow up in a lot of detail. 700 of those were hospitalised and of those that were discharged, majority had recovered well. So whilst they needed to be hospitalised for a few days, um, they generally required some uh, anti-inflammatory um, medications. Some had, had uh, a medication culture seam which can be used for um, pericarditis and myocarditis couple had been more unwell and need more detailed follow-up, but majority it was mild to moderate with discharged home. So if people do present with this um, syndrome post the vaccine, it can certainly be identified, managed safely, and need to be monitored for longer term outcomes. But majority at this stage are recovering, um, and it's great that we have this detailed data coming out of the United States, with obviously closer and ongoing follow-up ongoing. So in terms of the ATAGI advice, the link there in terms of the updated advice, which was updated late last week, and this was basically saying that while we had some precautions to vaccination, some of those have been removed. As I've mentioned, that data from the United States is showing that they're not a risk factor for increased likelihood of having this um, rare adverse event of special interest. So those that have a history of congenital heart disease, have had a cardiac transplant or have cardiomyopathy can receive the vaccine without any precautions. So those precautions have been taken away. The main precautions that remain are those that have recent inflammation of the heart. So they've had pericarditis or myocarditis for other reasons. They should have completely recovered, ideally waited around um, three to six months before considering a vaccination, which would be under the consultation with a specialist. So it's really those ongoing recent history of inflammation of the group that need to have um, a discussion before you would proceed with, with vaccination. But most of the other precautions, as mentioned, have been taken away. And this guidance has been done in collaboration with the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand. So again, a, a combined um, position statement with the immunisation group ATAGI and the subspecialty cardiologists. So in terms of more information for GPs, again, acknowledging Scott Parsons, who's the clinical editor for this health pathway. He'd done some similar work for TTS, the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And this um, health pathway just takes 
you through in terms of some of the assessment, investigations and management of myocarditis and pericarditis and would encourage all those GP listeners who have access to Health Pathways to have a look at this pathway, provide any feedback if they, they have any, but also utilise it if they do have people presenting with um, cardiac symptoms post the um, vaccine, some of which will just be temporally associated and not this syndrome, but differentiating those out is, is clearly really important. In terms of management in the emergency department, again, trying to get a really um, consistent approach, both in terms of primary care and emergency department. This particular guideline has been put together by the Paediatric Research in Emergency Departments Collaborative Group in consultation and collaboration with the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine, have put together a guideline of what to do when they arrive in the emergency department uh, if you do have chest pain. So again, lots of details on the slide, which I won't go through in a huge amount of detail, but just flagging some of those symptoms. So clearly presenting with acute chest pain, shortness of breath, uh, maybe some other more non-Pacific symptoms such as dizziness or feeling uh, a little bit faint. Clearly there can be other drivers as I mentioned before, and for those that are particularly old, I don't wanna miss an acute cardiac syndrome, but this is focusing on the pediatric 12 to 17 year olds where often wouldn't do a lot of investigations for someone who'd had chest pain. Um, often it's, it's non-specific in nature. We are requesting that if you do have uh, the vaccine and they're in that window, you do consider doing further investigations such as an ECG and troponin with the flow there of what to do in terms of interpretation and then management and, and disposition, liaising with cardiologists um, if required and obviously hospitalisation if there is confirmed myocarditis. So a really helpful flow diagram from the PREDICT group. So again, going through this reasonably quickly, but just wanted to give this sort of risk-benefit um, discussion, which again, I think is really important as we start to um, think about the rollout of the 12 plus vaccine to all of the ages. Clearly the benefits on the left-hand side, it's really important to note that there is actual myocarditis and pericarditis that can occur itself um, following the infection. So you wanna be protected um, through vaccination. Um, severe disease and death, it's really holding up in the 95% um, percent range in terms of that more severe outcomes for both of the mRNA vaccines. Um, there is obviously monitoring ongoing of how long that duration of protection is going to be for, but very confident that at the moment the cases we're seeing are very much in the unvaccinated here in Australia and internationally. The benefits of vaccination, again, also obviously for young people 12 and over, it's not just themselves, but also those around them. So their family members, particularly those that are elderly or immunosuppressed, um, we will need to protect them by cocooning and having our whole um, family and, and um, wider groups um, extensively vaccinated. Again, the protection of the community, really important. And then the benefits of the vaccine clearly uh, are greater as the risk of COVID increases, particularly into the, the younger, um, from the younger ages up into the uh, 40s to 50s and then the over 65. So it's really important to keep considering that risk benefit. We've got to keep making sure we're getting high coverage in those different groups with the benefits highest in, in older people. In terms of the myocarditis risk, again, the rates of what's the attributable risk or how many additional cases, it still is rare. So it's anywhere between two to five um, per 100,000 additional cases. As I mentioned previous, um, anaphylaxis itself is another potential risk of the mRNA vaccines. Again, very uncommon and getting down to the rates of, uh, with other vaccines around one to two per million. So again, acknowledging Alan Cheng for this particular slide, but I think it does help put some of that risk benefit discussion when you have particularly people turning, uh, presenting for discussion around the um, mRNA vaccine in that 12 to 17 year old age group, noting AstraZeneca vaccine is not licensed in this age group. It's only licensed from 18 years of age. So moving now to the next topic, I've just spoken a little bit on that 12 to 17 year old um, age group. And again, just touching back on that, that the, the um, Moderna vaccine in pharmacies is currently from 12 to 59 years of age, so following the same uh, Commonwealth 
recommendations in terms of access to that vaccine. Obviously constant reviews around that, but that's the age group that can go to the pharmacies for Moderna. What about the under 12s? And this was a common question over the last few weeks in terms of some data that's emerging. So essentially both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are looking to those younger age groups. They're going down systematically into those different groups. And there was a press release um, on the 21st of September of the Pfizer vaccine. And their sort of headline release was this shows that it's safe and effective. The right hand side just got a bit more detail of that trial. It was around 2,500 children. They've used a lower dose um, of the spike protein than in the adult trial. So it's only 10 micrograms. So um, younger children are very good at producing immune response to protect themselves from COVID and also very good at producing a response with the vaccine. So need less dose. There's been an adequate safety profile in terms of that fever, non-Pacific and other side effects, and they produced a high level of neutralising um, antibody. This slide is just some details from the clinicaltrials.gov. Again, the links to those um, updates there. Any um, randomised clinical trial needs to go onto a database to be updated in terms of what's happening with that clinical trial. Both the Pfizer and Moderna trials are both on that website and the links are there. And as mentioned, they are going younger. So they're starting in that um, five to 11. There's also trials in the two to four years of age and then the six months to, to two years. So both vaccines are going down through the ages and we are expecting release of that data um, over time. And then we'll be able to see and, and decisions made about um, the use of these vaccines in the younger age groups. So the next steps in the COVID vaccines under 12 is, you know, in summary, it's actually great news that these trial data is emerging. Obviously we wanna see whether the vaccines are, work, are working and the vaccine efficacy is going to be really important as the safety. This detailed data is already being shared with the companies, just recalling that this was just a press release, so we haven't actually seen the data yet. It was very much just a high level results came through the media. In real time, this data is being shared with the, the international regulators. That's the FDA in the United States, the EMA in Europe, the MHRA in the UK and the TGA in Australia. Again, lots of acronyms in, in immunisation space. But essentially, they're all seeing this data in real time and have contributed to those studies. We know that these products are already licensed in the 12 plus, so there's not major changes apart from that um, amount of antigen I mentioned of the, of the spike protein. But it really needs to see that data at that regulator level before they can be approved in these different age groups. Once the vaccine's been approved, you can then start to consider whether they're going to be coming onto the program. And that's when it comes to the advisory group. So the ACIP, United States, JCVI in the UK and ATAGI in Australia. So that's the sort of steps that's required. And in terms of the safety, obviously, as I mentioned, the myocarditis risk is, is much rarer than that. It's more like um, one in 20,000 at, at the highest rate. So these trials are not going to be big enough to determine that, but they're still going to need to look closely at pericarditis and myocarditis and other things in more details in those studies. So that safety for those rare adverse events is something that the regulators will be looking at very closely. As soon as they can make those assessments, um, they'll be reviewing whether the vaccines can go into those age groups. So in terms of where they're up to with the 12 and over, the United States is progressing very rapidly. So they're up to 14.2 million doses have been given one dose or 56% of that population and fully vaccinated 11.5 million or 46%. So thinking of our population in terms of numbers, that's nearly, you know, not close to half um, the Australian population is, is 12 to 17 year olds have already had a vaccine. So really helped for us to be able to see that vaccine safety data uh, coming out of the United States in that age group. 
Similar in, in Canada, again, their uptake, as you can see there, is, is um, higher as they go through the different age groups. They've only just started in the 12 to 17, and they're up to 80% have been given one dose, and this is from the um, just late last week in terms of their uptake, 11th, 11th of September, and 71% um, fully vaccinated. So again, really high numbers being administered in, in that age group. So as I mentioned at the start, that once we get that further information in terms of the clinical trials, that evaluation, we're expecting the FDA to be able to see that in the next um, month or so, decision made hopefully before the end of quarter four, the end of this year, and then decisions about it coming onto the program. So expecting in the next two to three months, we'll have some decisions coming around that five to 11 year old, but we can't um, do that too quickly. We have to wait for those steps to be completed. So in terms of opening up the schools, focus initially on the high schools and then talk about the, the primary schools. Uh, this report came out from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance around schools, um, which was a really helpful sort of summary of the transmission in the schools with the Delta strain. This came out on the 8th of September and they showed that there'd been over at that time from the 19th of August, 10,000 cases of which 27% were in those zero to 18 years. Again, generally much milder infection, a few hospitalisations, but very few really unwell in intensive care, which we've seen throughout with um, uh, the COVID vaccine in children. It can be more severe uh, in a very small proportion with some with risk factors, but much less common than as you get into older age groups. The secondary attack rate in terms of uh, within the schools was around 4.7% and the highest transmission was actually between staff. So again, in the next slide, I'll just show some of that transmission information. In terms of then in the household uh, attack rate, it then does depend on the um, makeup of that household and the, and the duration, but the household tertiary attack rate was, was 70%. Again, acknowledging Alan Cheng for some help with this slide, but this is just looking at that school contact, confirming that the, if the adult is a source, it's much more likely to be transmissible than a child. So if the adult is infected, have an adult contact, it's 11% transmission, 7% to the child. If the child is the source, it's only 1.5% to an adult or another child. So much less transmission and majority of children, uh, even in these household contacts, were asymptomatic. So it does really reflect that if you're gonna protect children in the school, it's most important that the adults in the school are vaccinated and protected. So that includes the teachers, the carers, other support staff in the school all, all need to be vaccinated. So presenting in, preventing in schools, this was a paper that came out in the Journal of Peter Child Health now a few months ago and talked about some of the mitigation. I've included and read some things that have happened since then, but in terms of mitigation in school, there's lots of things that can be done. We're hearing lots about the ventilation and other things that might be able to be managed, but obviously even organisational, environmental, um, appropriate um, hand sanitising, all those things need to be in place and that's been done really well in schools to date. But control in the community will impact control in the schools. So if we get high levels of vaccine coverage in the community, we're less likely to have in schools. In the US, they obviously encourage mask wearing and staying at home if children are sick. In the EU, they're doing some symptom screening and um, reducing you know, class sizes, trying to manage that way. Surveillance and contact tracing obviously gets more difficult as the number of cases can increase, but that's another component. And now rapid antigen testing, which we won't have a chance to go through in detail today, but I know schools in the UK and internationally are using rapid antigen testing to reassure themselves they're not a case and then managing that school. So that's something that may be something that's going to be considered here in Australia. Not there yet, but definitely something that's been looked at and used internationally. What's in red is what I mentioned in terms of his vaccination. So the teachers, the carers, anyone 12 plus needs to be vaccinated to help us open up the schools. 
So in Pedoning vaccine in school uptake, lots of things are happening to help make that happen. I know New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, lots of jurisdictions are doing um, things to try and get into those, particularly the year 12. So year 12 blitz has been something they've called it here in Victoria and trying to maximise that uptake as they're moving into their year 12 exams. And we're impacted, particularly here in Victoria, with our second wave with lots of disruption to school. So really encouraging uptake. I know up to nearly 50% of uh, Year 12s have had the vaccine as part of this blitz, with obviously many going to GPs and pharmacies as well. So really high coverage happening quickly in these groups to allow them to get back to school. See school holidays in the moment, but hoping to get everyone back to school in, in Term 4 is, is really important. So now it's going to move into some of the discussion around the vaccine uptake in the culturally and linguistically diverse groups, a little um, bit of a chat around the, the mandates. So in terms of the tailoring the vaccine upsets, I think one of the key things here is really making sure that the message um, is reaching the right, the right people. And I think um, just listening to some of the discussion over this weekend, the coverage for parts of Southwest and Sydney, for example, have got really high. And part of that relates to not just the um, lack of um, ability to access the vaccine, but also to communicate the messaging. So I think there's sort of two main factors here that contribute to uptake in, in lots of these groups. There's lots of concerns around vaccine hesitancy, but if you're not providing the vaccine in a place that's local, so it can be accessed where people can just turn up, answer, have their questions answered, not get blocked by some of the technology or booking or other things that need to happen or travel, need to some of the bigger hubs. So what are the ways that we can start to support the culturally and linguistically diverse groups? And I think that sort of local champion is something that's really come through. So. Some of that's been targeting particular areas. So again, in Southwest Sydney, I know that they've been targeting different um, church groups or locations. This is a picture on the left here of one of the Greek churches in Victoria. So having pop-up clinics where actually the vaccine is accessible to those groups has been a really important part of that access. So access is really a key component here in terms of maximising uptake. The other thing that happened in Victoria was a, was a discussion around could you have the testing and um, vaccination at the same site? And this is something that wasn't obviously considered to be the um, easiest approach when we first were involved in the pandemic. We wanted to make sure that the testing sites wasn't contaminating those who were needing to be vaccinated. But clearly there are some communities where there's significant um, difficulty in getting access to the vaccine. This was one example at Altaqua where they had a number of outbreaks of infection in the school environment. Again, some in the community and coming in and by going in and providing both the testing, but also the vaccine was a really good way to try and maximise that uptake in that community. So this sort of pop up um, a really sort of mobile, flexible system is the way that we can really maximise uptake in these um, important communities. Moving now to mandates, this is something that's coming in again. I think before moving to mandates, we've got to consider what are the ways to maximise uh, uptake before you need to go to a, a mandate. And one of the ways to do that is to, uh, obviously um, the access issue is one of those important things. So some people were then getting a day off work to be able to get to that appointment for their vaccine administration. Or if they were sick in the days post the vaccine with some of those common expected side effects, they were able to have that day off and not be um, impacted by that. So I think, again, things have been very nimble and working around to do that. So a good example of how a mandate has come in but worked effectively is that in residential aged care facilities. So this was flagged a few months ago and in mid-September came into force and coverage has got up to 95% plus in the residential aged care facility workforce. So by providing both the access of vaccination being available at the site, making sure they're supported in making those decisions is the way to support that community and, and maximise uptake. If they have particular questions around the vaccine, they need to see their health 
professionals, including their general practitioner, to talk through some of those concerns and try and maximise that protection. So I think that's an example of where things have gone, have gone well. The one that's now coming obviously is the healthcare workers. This will be relevant to the audience in terms of those um, general practitioners who themselves will need to be vaccinated, but also other healthcare workers in the hospital and other parts of the system. And what we want to see, I think, is that to be really consistent. So I think this was an article that came out from the AMA, but I think has been discussed broadly across the healthcare work sector, is that we don't want to have different things in different jurisdictions that are quite diverse in terms of those recommendations and supporting the vaccine process. So if we do decide that there needs to be mandated vaccines in those healthcare settings, a majority of which from the public system has now come through, we need to support people in accessing those vaccines, make sure it's done in a consistent way and provide an opportunity for those questions to be answered and delivered. So I think the aged care and healthcare worker are both areas where we know we need to have maximal protection and it's about providing that access and support, which is going to be really important as well as that consistency. So this is just a paper from Julie Leeskin and colleagues from the COSI um, network who discuss some of the considerations around that vaccination. So as mentioned, some of that relates to access, some of the other factors that need to be in play in terms of a mandate you know, coming in. Have other issues been explored in terms of um, bringing in the mandate? And that will then apply to different workplaces. So as mentioned, the aged care and healthcare worker very clear. And then moving into some of the other workplaces, that's something that needs to, to be discussed and deliberated very closely. So again, that discussion, obviously a lot of political nature then comes around the vaccination of different places in the workforce. Again, other factors will still need to be in place for some of those places in terms of um, making sure some of the social distancing and other things as we get through the different proportions of people that are immunised. So again, really just that call for trying to make sure that we're thinking of all these considerations and supporting that decision being made as healthcare professionals when people come into your practice and want to discuss it. So I think it's really important to consider all those different factors. And again, in terms of the schools getting back to, to, to work, um, one of the things is then the school staff I mentioned is going to be really important. And again, that being mandated. So we need to make sure that there's accessibility of the vaccine to the schools, that there's a window of opportunity for them to, to have the vaccine and that the pop-ups are starting to occur now in the school environments. So that'll be for both teachers, um, students of the school and um, providing that local access. So I think the fact we now have general practice, pharmacy, immunisation hubs and pop-up clinics, we're really doing that rapid around to optimise access to the vaccine, discussing those important questions and then maximising our protection at a community level. So the last thing I wanted to touch on today is just the question that's coming up around the need for additional doses of the vaccine. And this was also published late last week from the Itagi um, statement on this um, topic. And just take you through a couple of points of, of um, the ways to consider those additional doses. One of the first things is to say that um, there's the concept of a third dose. So rather than thinking of this as a booster for longer term protection, it's actually to bring you up to the protection of everybody else. So we know that some people for different reasons don't respond to well for the vaccines. And this um, header from the ABC just says the decision in terms of booster shots being put off, but opens up the door for the third dose for the immunocompromised. And what we're talking about here, as I mentioned, is that not getting quite sufficient protection from the two-dose schedule. Again, this has been monitored very closely in some studies that have looked at that immune response and show they're just not getting that level of protection. They're definitely at higher risk of infection and it's therefore important to optimise their protection. 
And lots of our vaccines we use in, in children in particular and infants do need those three doses to get up to that level. So we'll give doses at two, four, six, 12, depending on the antigen um, to optimise that protection. So this is something that's well known in, in vaccination that we sometimes need to give that third dose, often with a bit of a gap for that third dose to maximise that protection. And examples of that are those immunocompromised. So solid organ transplant recipients, those that had a renal, liver, heart, lung transplant, uh, may need a, a third dose to optimise that protection. Not all of them, but the whole cohort needs to be vaccinated to bring them up to that level, as well as the haematological malignancies, including leukaemia. So thinking about that third dose is, is a group that needs to be considered. And that needs to be considered separately to the booster dose, which is much more of that waning of immunity over time and acknowledging lots of people listening themselves would have been vaccinated early in the rollout in sort of March, April of, of this year as the rollout was starting, people were early on getting the vaccine, including our residential aged care facilities were also vaccinated early in the program. And some of that immunity will decrease over time and it will vary depending on the vaccine that you've had, whether that's the Pfizer or AstraZeneca. But how that's measured is actually difficult. So again, just trying to talk on some of the vaccinology here. We measure the antibody in most of the studies, but we don't often measure the T cell response um, in as much detail. It's often only done in a subset, nor the memory cells or the memory B cells, which are particularly important in that longer term protection. So while there may be some waning or changing that antibody, it's really measuring how well the vaccine's still working in the, in the community in terms of that severe infection, such as hospitalisation and ICU are some of the key outcomes. So, while the booster shot dose is, is really um, circling at the moment, there's still a little bit of uncertainty around the degree of waning and what the timing of that booster may be and how that may vary by vaccine type. And lots of deliberations happening internationally, lots of acronyms again, but obviously the US between the FDA, the ACIP and the CDC are making some recommendations in terms of over 65 and, and healthcare workers in terms of the timing of those boosters, acknowledging they're also moving into their winter months with more severe disease. So. The residential aged care workers, the healthcare workers are all going to need to be considered uh, in terms of that schedule. And again, no firm decisions made to date, but that is really important. The last comment to make around the booster doses is this um, issue of global vaccine equity. We do know that lots of countries are yet to get access to the vaccine. And we know in Africa, for example, only three to 4% are fully protected. So the way to stop the pandemic is to try and um, have equity of vaccine access around the world. The risk of variants and things coming out is reduced if we can get to that high level coverage. So before we charge down the more wealthy countries giving third, fourth additional doses to their programs, we need to think about how we can make sure vaccines are going to countries that haven't had access to even a single dose. So it's really a world global approach is going to be important as we try and move to the next phase of um, what's going to be our COVID normal. So again, quite a bit of time covering those last few components, but hopefully that was helpful. Uh, again, acknowledging the SafeVic vaccine safety team in, in Victoria, which um, provided some of the data around myocarditis and doing you know, great work in the vaccine safety space, and Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, um, which is providing lots of information and training around the vaccine program and links to our frequently asked questions and other resources are there. So I'll wrap up there, but again, thanks for the opportunity for talking today. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice. 
wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.